me ask you to open up with me to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus and chapter 4. And this morning we're going to look one final time at Exodus 4, verses 18 through 23. So if you would turn there with me, Exodus 4, verses 18 through 23. We've already noted in this passage... Moses' respect for authority, his respect for his father-in-law, Jethro. And we have learned the lesson that we are to have respect for those whom God has placed in authority over us. We also saw that Moses has been away from Egypt. He's been working as a shepherd of sheep for a full 40 years. And he's now an 80-year-old man. And sometimes the greatest work that God will ever give us to do is a work that He prepares us for for a long time. Sometimes the greatest work that God will ever give us to do will be a work that we undertake in the final years of our lives. And so we learned a lesson that should apply to all of us as we get older. Once you become a senior adult, don't waste your life. Good things can happen in those wonderful years. We've also seen from this passage that a great change has taken place in the Egyptian government. There's a new pharaoh in town, uh, almost certainly the son of the previous pharaoh. But Moses is now free to return to Egypt. And God is working providentially, even in the rise and the fall of world leaders, to accomplish his purposes. And so after making those three observations from this passage, we narrowed in on verse 21, and we spent some time trying to understand the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. We dug deep into this reality, that God holds the hearts of all men in His hands, and He has the power to harden hearts, and He has the power to soften hearts. We are not independent, autonomous creatures. No, God holds each of us in His hands, and our destiny lies with Him. And so we ought to humble ourselves before this sovereign God. And then the last time we looked at this passage, we especially noticed the fact that God refers to Israel in this passage as His firstborn son. And so I was trying to help us get an understanding of of what that means, that that Israel was the firstborn son of God. And then I was trying to help us understand why that affects us. And it does. It affects you and, and it affects me. And so let's read our passage one more time. Let's begin in verse 18. Exodus 4, verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. 
And then you shall say to Pharaoh, and this is where we're focusing this morning, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And so we've been trying to understand what God means by calling ancient Israel his firstborn son. And we've done this under two headings. Um, The first heading is the nature of this adoption. The nature of this adopting of Israel as a firstborn son. And what did we see? We saw first that God's adoption of national Israel brought many earthly benefits. Now, we haven't talked about those benefits yet. We're going to get there in just a minute. But being adopted by God brought Israel many earthly benefits. The second thing we saw was that God's adoption of national Israel brought many spiritual benefits to Israel. But it did not automatically save In other words, the Jews didn't become um, automatic believers in God on the way to heaven just by virtue of being Jews. Uh, Jews need the gospel just as much as any other people on earth. But that being said, Israel did have many spiritual benefits that other nations did not. Uh, Israel had the law and the prophets. Israel had the priesthood and the temple and the sacrifices all preaching the gospel to them, pointing them towards the Lord Jesus Christ. God called His people Israel to trust Him and to have a heart for Him and His ways. And by God's grace, there were some in Old Testament Israel who were truly saved. And so Israel did receive spiritual benefits by being adopted. And then third, we saw that God's adoption of national Israel took place for the sake of the Messiah. Why did God adopt this nation? Out of all the nations in the world, why Why Israel? Well, it's because the fate of the entire world depended on the one male child that would one day come from this people. The hope of all the nations was going to come from this nation. And it was for Christ's sake that God protected this nation. And I want to say more, but we said it in that sermon, so we're going to press on. Number four, we saw that God's adoption of national Israel was temporary. Um, As controversial as it is, I argued last time that we make a great mistake, a great mistake, if we think that modern secular, democratic Israel is the same as the ancient, religious, theocratic nation of the Old Testament. Uh, Modern Israel is not the same as the nation that God made a covenant with at Mount Sinai. Uh, Modern Israel continues to reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Modern Israel continues to stumble over the cornerstone called Christ. And Israel is not being especially blessed by God in our day. If America stands with Israel, as America often should, we must not think that we're somehow standing with God's chosen nation. Today, the true people of God, the true Israel, is the church. And if we want to be especially blessed by God as America, then America needs to make sure we stand with the church and protect God's people around the world. Now, 
That was a lot of review, but it's important for us to, to remember those things so that you can understand where we're going this morning. Um, repetition always serves us well as learners. And so now I want to add one more statement, one more statement to the four we had from last time under this heading, the nature of this adoption. Number five, God's adoption of national Israel was prophetic. It was a prophetic adoption. Do you notice that Israel is called God's firstborn son? Firstborn sons were considered the sons of special privilege in the Old Testament. The firstborn son would be the son to whom a father would hand over headship of the whole family and the whole household once he died. The other sons would still receive an inheritance, but the oldest son would receive the greatest inheritance as well as the greatest responsibility for the future of the family. All the other sons, all the other family members were to look to the firstborn son and to honor him. Now what this means is that fathers tended in the Old Testament to especially prize their firstborn sons. A good father loves all his sons and and doesn't seek to show partiality. We saw at the end of Genesis how, how dangerous showing partiality to your children can be. But any wise father would have spent a good deal of time with his firstborn, helping him prepare and learn all that he would need to know to lead the household. And and therefore, it was often natural for the firstborn son to become uniquely dear to the heart of his father. And therefore, when God says to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son, God is saying that Israel is particularly and especially precious to him of all the nations of the world. The message to Pharaoh is clear. If you refuse to let Israel go, you're going to have an angry father to deal with. If you won't let my firstborn son go, then he will make sure that your firstborn son pays the price. In other words, this isn't a stoic God sitting up in heaven who who could care less. No, this is a God who is passionate about the care of His children. And yet this was meant to be a prophetic picture. Israel was being treated as a firstborn son. In fact, God leads Israel out of Egypt into an inheritance. God gives the promised land as an inheritance to His firstborn son. He entrusts His Word and His worship and His message that can save the world. He entrusts it to His firstborn son, Israel. The fate of the household of all humanity now depends on what happens to this firstborn son, to ancient Israel. But how is this prophetic? Well, remember, ancient Israel was adopted by God because through her, God's true son would come. Yes, the Son of God was up in heaven during these Old Testament days, but there would be a day when the true Son of God, Jesus Christ, would take on Himself humanity and He would walk this earth as the firstborn of God. 
In other words, the fatherly love and the fatherly care that God shows towards the nation of Israel in the Old Testament is a prophetic picture of the kind of fatherly love and the kind of fatherly care that God has for His Son, Jesus Christ, especially as Jesus walked as His Son on the earth. Indeed, God's care for Israel in the Old Testament was actually part of His care for His Son. God adopted Israel. Why? Because He loves Jesus. And He was making sure that everything would be just right for the coming of His beloved Son. Now, I know we're getting a little deep here. I want you to hold on with me for a moment. Okay, so you with me? Hold on with me for a moment. Hosea 11, verse 1, God says this. Listen carefully. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And that's what we're reading right here in Exodus, right? Ancient Israel is called God's son. And God says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. I loved my son Israel. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Then we come to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Matthew. And this baby is born called Jesus, the Messiah. From a a Jewish girl named Mary comes this baby Jesus. And a Jewish man, Joseph, is to serve as his earthly father. And what happens? Just like in Exodus, there is this cruel king out to kill all the male children in Bethlehem. King Herod, in an effort to kill this newborn Messiah, orders that all the male children of Bethlehem be slaughtered. And ironically... Where do Joseph and Mary flee to escape that? They flee to Egypt. Jesus, as a little boy, played upon the banks of the Nile River. Just like God's firstborn son Israel of old was in Egypt when Israel was young, Jesus, the firstborn son of God when He was young, is in the land of Egypt. And this is where Jesus must stay until it's right, until it's the appointed time for him to leave. And at that time, Joseph and Mary take Jesus to Nazareth. You remember the story, they have to wait till King Herod the Great dies. And just like God is going to bring terrible punishments on Pharaoh for uh, showing hostility towards his firstborn son Israel, God brought a great judgment on Herod the Great. Um, He died unexcruciatingly painful death. Josephus tells us that Herod the Great had a fever, an intolerable itching of his entire body, continuous pain in his intestines, tumors in his feet, inflammation of the abdomen, and gangrene in his private parts. And on top of all this, the man was being driven mad, paranoid, because all the people knew he was about to die, and they had already started rejoicing because they disliked him so much. So not a very pleasant way to die. So King Herod dies, and Joseph and Mary take Jesus now away from Egypt into Nazareth. And what does Matthew tell us? Matthew says, This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I call my son. In other words, Matthew tells us that the verse we read earlier from Hosea 11.1 that was about Israel, wasn't ever really about Israel at all. It was 
prophetic. What happened to Israel was a picture of God's love for the Lord Jesus Christ. The care that that God showed ancient Israel as a father was all pointing to the fatherly care that God would have for His Son. And if you start thinking about it, the parallels just continue. It is no accident that Israel wanders in a wilderness for 40 years and then comes to the River Jordan. And it's no accident that Jesus is tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and then comes to the Jordan. There is this parallel throughout the Gospels between what happened as a shadow in the Old Testament with Israel and what happens as the fulfillment in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Israel was always meant to point us to Jesus, who is the firstborn of God in a way that no one else could ever be. Jesus is the firstborn to whom the Father has given all authority over the household of the entire universe. God has entrusted everything to His firstborn, put everything in His hands, and Jesus is most dear to the heart of His Father. And yet, God's care for Israel is not just a picture of God's care for Jesus. It's also a picture of God's care for us. For when we believe on Jesus Christ, we are brought in to this relationship. Hebrews 12, 23 says, We are the church of the firstborn. We have been united to Christ in such a way that God's amazing care for Jesus now becomes God's amazing care for us if we are Christians. Right? Parents, you love your children. Maybe you have a son that you love. Your son marries a bride. Now, because you love your son, what happens? You overflow in love towards his bride. This is what has happened. We've been united to Christ. The love of the Father for His firstborn Son is now His love directed towards us for Christ's sake. The same kind of commitment that God the Father has for His beloved Son with whom He is well pleased is now a commitment that stretches to you. And so you see the care that God shows towards Israel in the Old Testament was always just a picture of the kind of care that God would show for His true people all those who are His, from Adam to the last person who ever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Second heading, the benefits of this adoption. The benefits of this adoption. I want us to see how God adopting Israel benefited them. And I want you to see how that also benefits us. I'm just going to mention three benefits. There are a lot more. I'm just going to mention three benefits. Number one, since Israel is his firstborn son, God will fight for them. Since Israel is his firstborn son, God will fight for them. That's what we are about to see in the book of Exodus. The Nile River is going to turn to blood. We are going to see a frog infestation, a gnat infestation, a fly infestation. We are going to see livestock struck with disease, boils appearing on men and beasts, thunder in a hailstorm like none the nation of Egypt had ever seen, an invasion of locusts. And then we're going to see darkness cover the land of Egypt. And finally, worst of all, we're going to see the death 
of all the firstborn sons. Why is God going to do all this? Why is He going to be so angry at Egypt? Parents in this room, how would you feel if you saw your children being abused? What happens in your heart when you think about someone beating your children with the whips? What we see in Exodus is not a God of uncontrollable anger who is acting on a whim. No, we see the righteous, furious, yet appropriately measured anger of a God who is a father bringing justice against those who would harm His beloved children. And He's not going to put up with it. And He fights for the sake of His children. This is a picture of how God stands this very moment against those who would abuse His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of us in this room is guilty of having attacked God's beloved Son, Jesus. Though Jesus is all good and all patient and all pure and perfect, we have turned against Him, we've rebelled Him. God has set Jesus as King over all and we've said, no thank you. And every time you lie... Every time you act in selfishness, every time you boast about yourself or refuse to believe God's promises, you're sinning against the express will of the Lord of the universe. And the Lord of the universe has a Father who loves Him and will not put up with His beloved Son being spurned. Do you dare continue to spurn Him? Do you dare continue to say that you somehow know more than Christ or that you somehow don't need Christ? If you think God was angry at Pharaoh for the way He treated the nation of Israel, how do you think He feels about the way sinners treat His only begotten Son? Well, John 3.18 tells us clearly how God feels. He doesn't hide it from us. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If you are continuing to reject the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are refusing to give your life to Christ and to follow Christ, make no bones about it, you are condemned already. The verdict has already been rendered. The Father has declared you guilty of cosmic rebellion against the greatest and most worthy King that has ever existed, His Son Jesus. And the only righteous punishment is eternal torment in hell. Don't try and reason your way out of this. Don't try and find ways to deny this. There is a witness inside of you that declares this is true. Your own conscience if it hasn't been seared by too much sin, it will testify to you that you are a sinner and there is hell to pay. We have rejected the Son of the Most High and now the Most High has His bow already bent back and His arrow of judgment is ready to fly. And any moment now, any moment now, 
the judgment of God will come upon those who would reject His Son. You will take your final breath and you will find yourself in the most horrid experience you could ever imagine. And worst of all, for your sake, the judgment will be completely justified. Do not be like Pharaoh. Do not harden your heart and spurn the Son of God. Bless the Son of God. Give yourself the, the give your allegiance to the Son of God. And just as God fought for Israel, and just as God fights for His Son, so God fights for those who are His children. How different things are between the unbeliever and the believer. Unbeliever, the Almighty Father of the Most High has His bow bent back, ready in judgment. Believer, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have a Father who loves you deeply, more deeply than you understand or can even imagine. If you are united to Christ by faith, God is your Father, and you are living in this moment as the object of His amazing love. Because God loves you so much, He is working every day to protect you from temptations and mishaps and dangers that you don't even see. There is a spiritual battle waging every day in which forces of darkness are being defeated by your Father for your sake. And what about those children of God who are right now being persecuted? What about those children of God who are right now being beaten or imprisoned or even executed? What about those Christians who right now are being starved to death by their enemies in a North Korean prison? Or being randomly and consecutively raped by members of ISIS? Or being abused or forced to watch as their own children are abused or slaughtered? Where is the love of this father for his children when his children are being hurt in this way? Well, let me remind you, God did not come against Pharaoh the very first day he brought the people of Israel into bondage. There were people of Israel, there were children of God who suffered and died without ever seeing God's justice come. But in his time, it came. And we do have this promise that we will be rewarded in glory with a joy that far surpasses any and every suffering that God appoints for us to endure in this life. The sufferings of this life cannot compare with the glory that our Father has prepared for us. And just as God did eventually rise up against Pharaoh and against Egypt, so God promises one day He will bring His judgment and His full justice against every person who has ever abused His children. And so we have that scene in Revelation 6 where the martyrs are crying out for God's justice. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, they cry out in a loud voice, How long? before you will judge and avenge our blood 
on those who dwell on the earth. How long until you make it right what's been done to us? And we're told that God gives each one of them a white robe and asks them, doesn't ask them, tells them to rest a while longer, just a little while longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves have been. In other words, God has a plan. And yes, that plan includes even more suffering and even more persecution and even more martyrs. But God says, wait a little longer. Once the full number has been reached, my judgment will come. Mount Hermon, God's people, have a Father who loves them and fights for them. Number two, since Israel is his firstborn son, God will lead them. Since Israel is his firstborn son, God will lead them. This is what good fathers do. They provide leadership for their children. They show them the way they should go. They take them by the hand and say, no, do it this way, not, not that way. And certainly we're going to see in the next few chapters God providing leadership for his son Israel. How? Well, we've already seen the beginning of it. He's raising up a man named Moses who will be a spokesman, who will be a shepherd for the people of Israel. And through Moses, God will tell His children what they need to know and and, and He will instruct them in what they ought to do. But secondly, God is going to come Himself and He's going to physically lead His people in the form of a cloud of dust during the day and as a pillar of fire at night. And then third, God is going to lead His people by speaking to them through His law and His instructions. His word He's going to give them at Mount Sinai. He's going to tell them how to organize themselves, how they are to conduct their day-to-day lives, how they are to worship Him. In the next few chapters alone, we're going to see God leading His people by His word, by His presence, and by His appointed leaders. Mark that. He's going to lead them by His word and His presence and His appointed leaders. And I would suggest it's still the same today. It's how God provided leadership for Jesus as He walked the earth. Jesus was being led by God's Word. God's Word hidden in His heart when He was young. We we remember Him there in the temple, 12 years old, discussing the Word of God with the scribes and the priests. We see the Word of God coming out of the lips of Jesus as He's dueling with the devil there in the wilderness and the devil tempts Him and Jesus responds with Scripture, Scripture. Jesus was being led through Scripture. Jesus was also being led by the presence of God within Him, the Holy Spirit. We read in the Gospel verses like Matthew 4.1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. And so we're told in the prophets that the Messiah would be one especially indwelt by the Spirit and through the Spirit He would proclaim good news to the poor and liberty to the captives, heal the blind, set free the oppressed. And then Jesus was also given people raised up by God to help lead Him when He was young. You think about Mary and Joseph and even great men like John the Baptist that we read about in this morning's earlier part of the service. And so Jesus, like Israel, led by His Father, through His Word, through His presence, through appointed leaders. And now you see that this also applies to us. 
How does God show His fatherly care for us? He leads us. We have the Word of God. We have the Scriptures in the way that the people of old did not have them. We have the full canon of Scripture completed and translated into our own language. Never has God's leadership through His Word been more perfect and complete. And God's Word is sufficient to lead you through every trial in your life. He's able to equip you for every calling He has placed upon you. Mount Hermon, it is through your reading of the Bible that God expresses His fatherly love for you. It is through your reading of the Bible that your Father shows you the way in which you should go. It is through the reading of the Bible that you experience His tender affection. It's in the pages of the Bible that He reveals the heights and the depths and the width and the breadth of His tender care for you. Don't neglect the Bible. But we also have the Spirit of God leading us. God Himself has come to us as Christians in the person of the Spirit. The Spirit has given us eyes to see, to understand what the Bible says. The Spirit gives us ears to hear the Word of God. Jesus often ended His preaching by saying, Those who have ears to hear, let Him hear. Meaning the Word of God is not enough on its own. You must have the presence of God, the Spirit of God, working to give you understanding. The Spirit of God that brings God's truth to our minds in the moments when we need them, in the moment of decision. I can go this way, I can go this way. Father, lead me. And the Spirit brings to your mind gospel, Christian, biblical truth. And He leads you. We have the Word, we have the Spirit, we have those appointed by God to be our leaders. Pastors who care for us spiritually. Deacons who set the example of godly living and lives of service. And through them, God ministers to us and guides us as a church in the way we ought to go. Well, let me briefly mention this last benefit of adoption. We've seen that God's adoption of Israel means that He fights for them, means that He leads them. But finally, since Israel is His firstborn son, God will provide for them. God will provide for them. A good father provides for his children. I'm not going to spend much time here. I'll just point out that in Exodus, we do see God provide for His children again and again. He provides leaders. He provides miracles to bring them to safety, like the parting of the Red Sea. He's going to provide water from rock when they're thirsty. He's going to provide manna from heaven, bread literally coming out of the sky when they're hungry. Over and over again in their moment of need, God is going to provide for Israel. And we see this with Jesus. God provided parents for him. He put disciples around him. We see that though the Son of Man had no place to lay his head, he had no home of his own, yet we see Jesus being welcomed into people's homes, fed at their tables, allowed to sleep in their beds. When Jesus was in dire straits, such as in the temptation in the wilderness or in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the Father sending angels to minister to His Son. God provided for His Son what His Son needed. And dear Christian, your Father will provide for you as well. You will never suffer any lack or any loss except that which has been appointed by God for your good. Christian history is full of a thousand stories 
of how God provided bread for His children just in the nick of time. And even more important than material and physical resources, God provides for us all that we need for joy and for peace and for purpose. God has provided for us a way to escape His judgment. He has provided for us Christ. Jesus is the great door of salvation. And at the end of the day, Jesus is all our souls really need. All encouragement, all true love, all true peace and hope can be found in Christ. If you have everything but Jesus, you have nothing. If you have nothing but Jesus, you have everything. He is the bread of heaven that God has provided for your soul. He is the water from the rock given for your spiritual refreshment. He is the Lamb of God sacrificed on your behalf. He is the Good Shepherd who leads and cares for His sheep. Jesus is the Bridegroom, the lover of our souls. He is the Captain of our salvation. He is our wonderful Counselor. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the meek servant who will not break a tender reed. And yet He is mighty enough to overcome all our enemies. Above all, Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and man. And so I call on all of us this morning to embrace the precious gift provided for us by God. Let us love, trust, and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And through Christ, let us live in the love of our glorious Father. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.